Hello and welcome to Talking Money. My name's Ben Trainer. Our topic today is fintech, financial technology. Now, if you're not sure what that term really means, then don't worry because it'll all become clear or at least a bit clearer in the next half an hour. Now, I'm a little bit nervous for this podcast because my guest today, as well as being an expert on fintech, he's also a seasoned podcast host in his own right, and I'm sure will be judging me on my performance today. So rather than risk doing a long intro for him to judge, let me dive right in and introduce you to today's guest, Mr. Mike Ballerman. Hello, Mike. Hello, Ben. Now, Mike, you're, you are the host of the London Fintech podcast. Uh, and you also do a lot of consultancy work in the fintech space. Can you tell us a bit more about those projects and about fintech more generally and how you how you fit in with it and what, what it is that you do? Um, good question. Um, and first of all, I'm very glad that you're nervous. I saw some summary of Machiavelli's Prince recently where he said, you know, always keep your, uh, your friends and enemies in fear. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first thing is to get the upper hand of the podcast. You see, it's just like a boxing match, really. Um, but very briefly, uh, I've been in the city for over 30 years. Uh, I ran global fixed interest fund management businesses. I was the first head of risk in the city back um, in last millennium. So uh, I'm coming at the whole thing from a long perspective in finance. In terms of this fintech, which I'll define the word in a minute, uh, I think it's really just the last sort of three or four years uh, that I've noticed it. You mentioned podcasts. Well, I think as you're probably rapidly finding out, podcast is one of those things you wake up one morning when it's particularly sunny and the birds are singing and the bunnies are leaping around. You think, hey, that's a good idea. I'll do one. And then several years of work goes into it and you find out that it wasn't as easy as you first thought. However, having said that, um, the show's now got well over 100,000 downloads, 148 countries worldwide, and over the 50 of the top people talking on it. So You get, been, you get a really good uh, range of people on it as well, don't you? Well, Quite I think the, um, the, the main thing is a bit like cooking, which is that the better your ingredients, the better you're likely to do with the outcome. And um, there's many niches uh, in podcasting, of course, and many spaces to fill. But the one I'm trying to fill is the sort of two-weekly deep dive, educational, with a bit of entertainment, and trying to understand things enough to be able to explain them to people who don't understand financial services. So I don't believe in target listeners, but a friend of mine who's an architect listens. I always try to make sure that someone as an architect with no background in FS can understand anything that's going on in fintech. Which brings us to the question of what is fintech? I think the simplest and shortest answer I can give is it's a very silly word. It's a very silly word, which actually everybody's using um, for a phenomenon, uh, which is much more complex. um, And it's just basically a handle. It hit the mainstream media as a word, I think, in something like 2014, when the whole thing took off. And like the Guardian, the Telegraph were writing about fintech. Fintech really breaks um, simplistically into two bunches, one of which you could call new financial services companies who are providing financial services for either individuals or institutions. So, for example, the likes of Zopa will lend you money if you're an individual with a good credit. And equally, uh, if you've got excess funds at the moment and you want to lend them out, you can lend them out through Zopa. The likes of Funding Circle will do the same if you're corporate. This end, which is sometimes called the disruptive end of fintech, is actually relatively small. The majority of what's called fintech, you might actually better call perhaps tech fin. They're in old money. They're IT companies trying to sell into financial services. 
and that's probably like 95% of fintechs as a whole, and they're finding it actually much harder than they would have thought a year or two ago because banks are now so vast that the sales cycle into a bank to sell them a pencil, and I'm not joking, uh, is literally a year or two once you've gone through all their processes. So we're talking about these two different phenomena. We're talking about new financial services companies that happen to be very digital, very online, very easy to use, TransferWise being another example, or Crowdcube and equity crowdfunding, providing services for you and I and for businesses, and then the other part of it, which is new IT to make banks better banks. So do you find when you're doing your consultancy work and working with fintechs, do you find you do a lot of expectations management? You know, if they, you know, particularly for newer companies that might think, we've, we've set up a product, we're going to sell it to a bank, we're going to be millionaires by Tuesday, and you say, well, hang on, it doesn't quite work like that. Well, I think the interesting thing, observing it over time, as I say, I've been doing podcasts every other week for two years, and I'm always trying to find people who are at the coalface so they can tell me what it's like at the coalface, and the reports that come back do change over time. So to your question, 2014, I think, was very much the year of the startup. There were a good handful or maybe two handfuls maximum of fintechs that had been around for a few years before that, before pretty much anybody had coined the word. Um, but in 2014, a thousand flowers bloomed and a load of people started off. And I personally spent a lot of time with startups, most of which was, I think, the best educational. Um, but really, a lot of it was actually a waste of time because there were loads and loads of people with all sorts of ideas. Um, you can try and persuade them that actually that a zebra crossing is black and white and they'll insist that it's blue and green. Um, and you know they're going to fail like moths into, into a flame. So a, a hell of a lot of people started stuff off, which is really good, but then the vast majority of them lacked any experience in being a startup and many lacked any experience in FS and quite a few lacked ex experience in tech. So there was a pretty rapid shakeout um, and that shakeout's continuing now. You've now got companies which have moved from the stage of being startups to scale-ups, i.e. they may have raised a few million or sometimes tens of millions um, from investors. So they're kind of a proper company getting on for 100 people and you know a lot of them are now wearing suits and ties rather than t-shirts. But even then, what they're finding is that in financial services, and this is no different from agriculture or pharmaceuticals or media, the world these days is an oligopoly. Economic sectors um, are really got enough spaces only for, say, three or four or five, taking the marketplace lend as an example. You know, we don't need 142 or whatever there were a couple of years ago. The same in payments. Let's say in two or three years' time, you and I and the listeners are using some new revolutionary form of payments app. How many apps are you going to have for payments? Are you going to have, a, are you going to have 100 on your phone? No, of course you're not. So there's this rapid winnowing out. It's a kind of very fast, it's like evolution on steroids. It's happening very rapidly. So it's a, sort of, it's a winner-takes-all space in which... In the case of some of these spaces, your payments, for example, there already are incumbent winners who presumably are fighting back. Yes, it's a winner-takes-all, but that's nothing necessarily to do with financial services. If you started a new drug company and it was successful, before you know it, Smith, Klein, Glaxo, Beecham, or whoever they are, would have bought you if you're successful. And if you're not, you'd fail. That's just how the world works. I think there's one important difference about fintech relating to the incumbents that you mentioned. And one of my sayings is that fintech is not tech. So tech itself is quite exciting and you can make things happen very rapidly. So you could produce, for example, a new chat app tomorrow and somehow this takes over the whole world um, and there ain't much stopping you. In fintech though, and this is what's really slowed down the disruptive stuff, is that there's a massive, unbelievable amount of regulation around the whole space. So to give an example on the investment management side, not robo-advisors, but something that actually a lot of people, depending on the demographic, really could do with, good advice on pensions. 
Andy Haldane, who's a chief economist at the Bank of England, recently gave a speech where he said that he doesn't understand pensions. Now, this is the chief economist of the Bank of England. If he doesn't understand it, after a lifetime at the Bank of England, at the centre of financial services, how is anyone else going to understand it? So you might say, ah, that's ripe for disruption. We can help people understand their pensions. And that would also be a social good. It wouldn't just be, oh, I'm going to make a firm to make money. It's, no, I'm going to actually help people with their retirement and make sure they're safe. So just to give you a context that one. In 1992, there were 3,000 pages of regulation and rules around pensions. Now, there are 80,000 pages of regulation around pensions. How is your app going to process 80,000 pages of rules around regulation? So fintech is very tough to disrupt. The incumbents have got the vast scale, and frankly, they can employ armies of lawyers to make sure they tick all these boxes. So there really is a, a strong barrier to entry in financial services. So, you know, you have to be pretty crazy, as I said before, to be a podcaster. And I think you have to be pretty crazy to be a fintech. I mean, the good thing that comes out of it um, is that it's a bit like crossing the Sahara Desert. Only the strong, <laughs> only the strong make it through. Um, let's talk about uh, what's called peer-to-peer -peer lending, um, which... A lot of people listening to this will uh, be the kind of people you described earlier who may have some some excess money or certainly some money they'd like to get a return on. And as I understand it, peer-to-peer -peer lending came along and positioned itself saying, we will take that money, we will lend it on to somebody, um, and we'll take a maybe take a small bit. The, I don't even know if they take a small bit in the middle or whether they just take a commission. I'm not quite sure. I think that some of the models differ. But basically the idea is, is that you could get a better return than you could get at the bank, and at the same time, People could get credit, and that was the idea. Now, there's I've got a couple of questions around this. Um, I'm kind of going to lump them in together. The first one is whether peer-to-peer -peer is actually the right name for it. Um, is it peers lending to peers? Because I know a lot of institutions have got in on the act. Um, well, just to take that one first, that's yeah. a very simple one. Is it a bit like fintech being a silly word, but everyone uses it because it's convenient? Uh, the answer is no, that P2P isn't relevant because, as you say, originally it was rich media journalists such as yourself lending to poor podcasters uh, such as me. And it was peer-to-peer. -peer. It was connecting individuals. But then what happened, um, particularly in the States, which was driven by institutional money, has moved over here. There's a lot of institutional funds in it. So in that sense, it's not peer-to-peer. -peer. You may, you know, some, For example, Metro Bank puts a lot of money through Zopa. You know, Metro Bank is just a bank. It's so that's, that's, that's happened right. in the UK as well now. That that's happened a lot that's in the UK, possible. although recently, especially with the, the woes of Lending Club in the States, where the share price fell something like 80% and a whole bunch of problems, um, the institutional money has really sort of dried up quite a lot. So actually, there's a bit more emphasis on trying to get the retail flows in. So it's a, it's a silly word, but let's use it because it's just convenient. Okay. Um, but one, one quick question on that, though. What's the difference between P2P, if we're going to use the term, and... You know, a more traditional loan originator. I mean, essentially, aren't they performing the same function whereby they, they will go out and find people who want credit and create a loan which they might then sell on, securitize, do whatever with? I mean, what, what, what's the big difference with these guys? What's new? So, from the perspective of being a borrower, if you need to buy a new car or if you need funding for your daughter's wedding or something like that or a house extension, um, what I understand, I haven't been a borrower myself, but what I understand is that, for example, if you go to the likes of Zopa, and I mentioned them because they started the whole thing in 2005, so they've been going the longest, is that um, based on all the surveys I see, the customer experience is so much better. These are organizations who started fresh, blank sheet of paper and tried to make the customer journey as easy as possible. So actually, you will find it easy as opposed to 
back in the day, when I first bought my flat, I, you know, you had to sort of trot around all the building societies, fill in forms, come back weeks later and all that kind of thing. So they've really smoothed the process from the borrower's perspective. From the lender's perspective, then of course, as most people will know, the biggest difference is that if you lend your money to a bank, you deposit it, um, that's guaranteed by the government. Um, and if banks mess up, uh, then all the taxpayers have to sort of get the money and, and pay you back. So you're guaranteed that way. So the main difference is that you're not guaranteed when you're lending money through a peer-to-peer -peer or other such lenders. Having said that, um, of course, you need to get a return for your risk. And historically speaking, if you put money in Zopra over the last 15 years or funding circle over the last five years or rate setter, um, you can have got as much as 10 times what you ought to have got by putting it into a bank. Beyond that point, as you say, the, the models differ. So rate setter's model is very different from Zopra's, is very different from funding circle. But the basic thing that they're doing, coming back to your one of the nuggets of your point, is that actually they're originating debt. They're trying to find money people who need money to lend it to and then there's doing something with that on the other side okay now following on from that then uh, and i know you've written a bit about this yourself uh, online and spoken about it on london fintech podcast quite a bit um as a lender on a peer-to-peer -peer platform you're obviously taking on a bit more risk and that's understood how easy is it to gauge and understand the amount of risk that you're taking on because as i understand it from uh, what I've read from you and, and elsewhere, there's there's not uh, there's not that much clarity in it be, to to allow you to compare one platform with another and the amount of risk. They don't seem to use the same metrics and the same models. Is that is that a fair comment? Um, that's a fair comment, and that's absolutely still um, the bleeding edge, as far as I'm concerned, of the whole scene. Um, it is very hard, for example, to say which is the risk you're out of Zopa rate setter and funding circle and they're the, they're the largest three in the UK. I mean I can just tell you you know a couple of anecdotes I mean one of which is at the moment the big thing is aggregators. Um, new platforms are trying to be the one place you go to a bit like price comparison sites shall we say um, and you just deal with them you don't have to go to sort of five different peer-to-peers to spread your money across platforms and the bleeding edge for them is basically as you imply they have no real simple clear way of measuring the risk in these platforms, um, let alone communicating it to people. Um, another anecdote is that uh, about just under a year ago, the world's largest conference of peer-to-peers slash marketplace lenders, which is another name for it, took place in London. I think there were hundreds of people. It's going to happen again this autumn. There's about 1,000 people uh, called Lendit. I was chairing the risk panel with some of the leading players in the marketplace. And I put them to two questions to them, which is, a, what is the risk? And the first was qualitative question. So the qualitative question, you can waffle away and say, well, the risk is you may not get your money back and the economy might downturn and yada, yada, yada. And everyone did okay on that, as you might expect. And then the second one I said to the audience, I said, okay, look, just before I ask the question to the peer-to-peers, um, imagine I'm going to give you each a thousand pounds and uh, once they've answered their questions, I'll ask you how much you think you know about which the risk you're in and where you want to put it in terms of the risk. And so I asked them, I said, well, very simply, I give you guys a thousand pounds. What am I likely to get back in five years time? No guarantees, no nothing, but just give me a feel. Am I likely to get back 1,500? Am I likely to get back 1,200 to 1,800? Am I likely to get back naught to 2,000? 
They all answer these questions. In, in my opinion, I thought they were waffling and didn't actually narrow it down at all. This is actually online. You can include it in your show notes. There's a, there's a video of this. It's like car crash TV. <laughs> I haven't really been able to watch it myself. <laughs> I, 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 watched, I watched it when it happened. It was, uh, yeah, it was a bit awkward. Yes, it, was, it was a bit awkward, but um, Peter Renton, who, uh, who organised the conference, wanted me to ask these people directly. Um, and then I asked the audience, who was about 200 or 300, how many of you now feel that you know... Um, which one's riskier or, or even something more about the risk. And only about three out of 200 or 300 put their hand up as knowing more, who are obviously the PR people for those companies. The rest of the people didn't understand it. So that is a genuine issue. That is a genuine issue. How much risk are you taking is that nobody can quantify it at the moment. And as I say, I speak from the perspective that 30 years ago, almost I was running a, a fixed interest business, which is trading debt, as you say, trading securitized debt. And I was in 1992, the first head of risk in the city when risk didn't exist per se. So I've got a lot of background well, on I, this. I was just about to ask you that, actually, whether it's a bit of a sense of deja vu for you, because to, to drill into your point, as you say, no one can offer any guarantees, but it's standard practice, certainly these days, to try and give yourself as best, you know, quantitatively, as good an idea as you can of what is, you know, what kind of losses are likely and what kind of losses you'd be very unfortunate to get. You know, again, with no obvious guarantees, but the, the, there's there's a lot of work that is done in that area. Um, and it sounds to me like, I mean, is it just because, I mean, why, why do you think it is? And I'm, ask, I'm asking you to speculate a little, but why do you think it is that peer-to-peers haven't done that work? Is it just because they haven't got the track records yet? The well, I, think, I, think, I, I think I don't need to speculate. So again, just, just winding back to my career when I was in um, investment management, if you invested in bonds or if you invested in equities, for example, there is a long price history for, say, FTSE 100. Yeah? You can look at the FTSE 100 over the last 50 years and you can, you can work out, oh, the 10 worst days in equities over the last 50 years have been you know, minus 15%, minus 18%, and minus 33%. Um, so, eat, so that's the worst cases. And then equally, you can look at it and see, oh, well, on the average day, on the average day, the FTSE moves 1% or half a percent or something like that. So you can actually perform some statistics. Now, as you say, the past is never quite the same as the future. Um, it is a bit related, but it's never quite the same. Um, but at least it's giving you a feel. <clears throat> now, I think the simple case is that the market, um, we call it like that, the market to invest in, in terms of this alternative finance assets, is still relatively new. There is a, an, an index called the Librem Altfi Index, um, which off the top of my head takes the top four or five and shows you the return characteristics. So you could measure your portfolio, for example, against, uh, I don't know, let's say it's an equal weighted um, asset allocation. So you can see whether you're doing better or average than a, a passive strategy where you just close your eyes and you spread your breaths um, evenly. But what there isn't um, yet at this stage is, for example, a daily... Um, return index uh, for, say, Zopa, or for funding circles A-grade credits or B-grade credits. I think if you had that daily pricing index, this mark-to-market, which became so essential in risk management in financial services, then anybody could stick it into their spreadsheet and they could see what the worst kind of day is in the last 100 and they could work out the average and standard deviation and they could stop playing with statistics. So I see the fundamental problem as being a lack of a pricing um, index in the market from the individuals and going back to the disparative models, we're still in the early stages of development. I mean, the bond market took a long time to develop. I, I, I read recently that one of the reasons for the, the, the British Empire taking off was the marriage uh, of William of Orange um, uh, to whoever he married, Queen Anne or something, I can't remember. But anyway, they, at that point, the British, British learned this debt financing that the Dutch had got at the time 
Um, and so we then started trashing the French in the Thirty Years' War and all these kind of things, because basically we invented the way of you know, borrowing lots of money before it existed, spending, spending it on military hardware, <laughs> and then going, going ahead and taking, taking the world. So that, was a, that, you know, that technology, shall we call it, the bond market, and government borrowing like that has been around for centuries. So it's just the early days of fintech. So it's still a little bit Wild West. What this means is that, as I said before, that historically people have been getting 10 times what they could have got in a bank, which is probably, at a guess, far more return than the risks involved. Going forwards, the more it becomes liquid, the more you get all these kind of things, the more the risk will be better priced. And for the sake of argument, I don't know, we could imagine in, in five years' time, it's twice the risk on, on uh, twice the rate of return on banks. Okay, um, that's, I mean, just just get my head around a lot of that then. So it sounds like it's not just that they that they, there hasn't been a particularly long price history. They're still not generating the prices. They still don't have the daily mark-to-market. So it's going to take a long time before they're even generating those data for you to, for you to have a, a price series that you can then use to try and price risk in the future. Is that a, yes. Is that a fair yes, summary? Ex- ex- exactly. So, for example, I mentioned the uh, alt file. Liberum Index, Altfi Data, who are the people who crunch most of the numbers, um, certainly for the big four players, or five perhaps, they just introduced a product uh, recently for institutions. Um, I'm sure they speak to sort of high net worth private individuals as well to help people understand some of the data behind it, because these portfolios are transparent, i.e. all the data is available and downloadable in a spreadsheet for every deal ever done on the platforms. But of course, it's a lot of work. I I downloaded it for myself out of interest. It's a lot of work. It's all very well saying, oh, we're we're transparent and the banks aren't transparent. You don't know what you're lending to, da, da, da. But it's a lot of work if someone suddenly sends you a 600,000 line spreadsheet with 78 columns (laughs) to work out what the risk is from that. Well, is it 42 or four? I don't know. Yeah, transparency can be a slippery word. Um, let's turn to equity crowdfunding, uh, which I know is another area that people who are listening might have come across, might be interested in, might even be involved in. Um, now, we often hear the phrase, the wisdom of the crowds, uh, particularly in the early days of equity crowdfunding. Just to, just to quickly sum up what it is, this is basically things like Crowdcube and Cedars um, and various others where people will pitch for, people, you know, startups will pitch for funding for their business, sell some shares in it, um, a little bit Dragon's Den style is the way it tends to get described in the newspapers. Now we hear this phrase wisdom of crowds and the implication is that lots of people trying to guess guess or estimate what a variable is will tend to, on average, come up with a better estimate of that than most individuals will. Now, with equity crowdfunding, there seems to be an assumption that you can apply that to a company's valuation. Um, but I've read quite a lot of things, quite a lot of criticisms of that idea, which, which suggests that this isn't happening and this isn't really what we're seeing as much as one might expect, that a lot of people on the internet don't necessarily perform that job and don't necessarily hold, hold entrepreneurs' feet to the fire when they're coming to them for funding. Yes, so that's a whole host of questions and a it whole, is a whole host, host of issues. Questions, um, yes, so but I think just to just to start off um, very simply, uh, there's an expression which I quite like, which is no matter how thinly you slice it, it has two sides. So, for example, let's just take a different proverb, which is that many hands make light work. Sometimes many hands do make light work. If you've got to sort of you know dig over a whole garden, the more people you've got with spades, the better. What's the opposite of that? Which is too many cooks spoil the broth. 
if you're making a soup, you want to do it yourself. So I think the same thing, coming back to the wisdom of crowds, yes, sometimes the crowd has wisdom, but then the flip side of that coin is sometimes the crowd has madness. And, you know, it depends on the individual situation, whether the crowd is being wise or being mad. I mean, a lot of the media propaganda, as you'll be familiar with, is coming from people with a vested interest in telling you, oh, this is all wonderful, and the crowd's really wise, and join the crowd, and, you know, yardy, yardy, yardy. Um, the flip side of that is that I saw a tweet, uh, I think, last year, by a venture capitalist who said, oh, I love crowdfunding. It's it's cheap, dumb money. Um, you know, so your mileage, your mileage Which may Which is a cynical vary. but very honest view. Yes, it's the flip side. You know, it's the flip side. It's like tennis. I mean, I saw Andy Murray yesterday. You, you, you play it sometimes in the forehand. You play it sometimes on the backhand. So I think it's important not to be stuck to a particular position. And now in terms of the valuation point uh, you mentioned, going back to my prior incarnation, you know, when we were climates, we were doing sort of billion dollar IPOs and all this kind of stuff, absolutely the opposite end of the spectrum. And I rem remember one at um, a Gazprom. We did the privatization of Gazprom and somebody was sent off literally to count the oil wells and price water as we to count the oil wells. And we couldn't even find out how many oil wells there were in, in Russia, as you, you can imagine, it was very difficult. Um, and what generally happens in these things is that corporate finance drive the process and the equity researchers and equity salesmen kind of work out what the price is. And so on the one hand, you've got an analyst who says, oh, the valuation of Gazprom is 275 a share. And on the other hand, you've got the equity salesman who's rang around all the fund managers who are, of course, doing their own valuations. Um, and he says, oh, well, there's no way anyone's going to pay above 250. Forget it. I don't care what you think the valuation is. Yardy, yardy, yardy. Uh, and, you know, and then some way it kind of meets in the middle. And this discussion was going on and on and on and on about what the real valuation of Gazprom should be. And I remember getting impatient at this point and saying, look, guys, in six months, it will have doubled or halved from whatever number you come up with. This is irrelevant. You know, it's angels on the head of a pin. And they, oh, no, 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 no. And actually, I was wrong. And I'm, it's interesting I was wrong. I was wrong because it, and I've forgotten, it either doubled or halved in three months. Now, that's, the one, that's one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a massive, massive producer of uh, oil and gas. So if you can't value something like that, how are you going to value, you know, Ben Trainer's latest startup idea yeah, yeah, tomorrow yeah. and he's yeah. raising a few quid? So I, I would actually reject the notion of, valuation whatsoever. You know, one of the people I listen to most on this sector said there's no such thing as valuation. You know, you've got a team of people, you've got an idea, they need a bit of funding. It's it's much more like a, a lottery ticket, you know, it may get somewhere. And I think the other thing allied to that is that the platforms make money from volume. So, you know, it's in their interests and the standards vary across the platforms, to be frank. It's in their interest to pump as much stuff through as possible. So if, for example, you're trying to list on the stock exchange, um, the London Stock Exchange, which is what Gazprom was doing, there's a whole bunch of apparently tedious and boring rules and box ticking you need to do, yardy, 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 and I'm sure it's too much. But at the same time, it does actually produce standards, whereas um, some uh, instances, no due diligence is done whatsoever. You know, the platform might just accept the numbers that the management comes up with. And I did see some statistics saying that of the est of the financial projections um, uh, on one platform, uh, a year later, 99% of them for, for companies that raised money had turned out wildly optimistic. Well, that's not a surprise, is it? So what you're saying essentially then is that the, the gatekeepers um, don't have a particularly strong incentive to lock the gate. Well, what I'm saying is they're not gatekeepers. Well, they're not gatekeepers. They're, 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 bro they're brokers. Yeah. Oh, bro right. now, okay. now, let me be clear. They, they have a reputation, you know, a bit like going into Sainsbury's. Sainsbury's doesn't want to sell dodgy chicken that makes everybody ill and puts them in, in hospital. So they have a reputation, but equally they have a large part of, look, we're actually just a platform. We're listing stuff. You know, you guys sort of understand it and all that kind of thing. I think the innovation, which I found interesting in the last couple of years in, in crowdfunding, which helps deal with some of these challenges around due diligence and around pricing, um, is syndicate room. So Syndicate Room have got what they call an investor-led model of crowdfunding. 
By which I mean, if you go to Cedars or Crown or Cube, then we're all putting money in and the, inv and, and the company says, oh, our shares are 150p. And at the syndicate room, uh, it will be driven by an angel and the angel will be putting a huge chunk of his money into and it. And that's usually somebody who has quite a good knowledge of this whatever sector well, that for, for the sake of argument someone's spending sort of six figures or you know 50 grand at least plus plus if not quarter of a million on this company so he's somebody who's got that kind of money to put out there he's somebody with a background of investing as an angel and most importantly he will have gone around there kicked the tires uh, and negotiated my latest um, you know london fintech podcast fundraising round from 150p to 15p or something like that so you get i think more comfort in that model on due diligence and on pricing so i think that's an interesting innovation yeah. and the due diligence is important i mean if i mean valuation we spoke about earlier you you made a good case for that not necessarily being the right way to look at it but there is a lot that you want to make a judgment on if you're investing in these things one the likelihood of success but there's also qualitative things like the kind of shares that you get um could you speak a little bit about that because i know i know you've yes. mentioned it in the past yes um and again it's one of the things where i think the equity crowdfunding standards are very poor i think it lags behind p2p and it's well behind the stock exchange uh, and even uh, aim which has had its difficulties in the past so the word equity just in common usage means fairness We've got an equitable solution, Ben. <laughs> you know, we, 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 it's fair. But that gets complicated by the fact that there's all sorts of classes of shares. There's A shares and there's B shares, which very simplistically, for any people that ever watch these sort of old-fashioned uh, movies about country houses in England, you've got upstairs and downstairs. You know, upstairs you've got the aristocrats sort of doing what they like, and downstairs you've got the sort of peasants working away. And A shares and B shares, if I can put it unpolitically correctly, is a little bit like that. So, for example, let's say I've got A shares um, in uh, London Fintech podcast and you've got B shares. I can sit here and decide to pay all the dividend to the A shareholders and none to the B shareholders and there's nothing you can do about it. So, a lot of the equity that's sold, um, especially on Crowdcube, for example, tends to be B shares. It tends to be the kind of thing that some VC uh, or some listing or some event in the future can actually basically screw you over. So can that have a bearing when it comes to future funding rounds and how much you're diluted? This will depend upon the actual terms of you know, A shares and B shares and, and all sorts of preemption rights and things like that. There's a whole bunch of complicated lawyer really stuff online. But I think the important thing is to realize that you know, if you're getting sort of if you're buying one percent of a company, you may own one percent of the equity, but you don't get one percent of the rights. You know, in many cases you may have, for example, no voting rights and you you may not be treated well well on dividends, or you may be treated well on dividends for five years and then some new management comes in and they do something differently. Uh, I mean it's it's one of, of it's a, as you say it's very it's very loyally um, and we're not going to be able to even scratch the surface of uh, the different issues there are but it's worth being aware of those that, that there are these issues out there and uh, if yes, you are all getting all equity all equity shares are not created equally that's the main point yeah yep um, one final question then and we've touched on it earlier when you were talking about robo advisors but on when you did your review of 2015 and look ahead to 2016 on on London fintech podcast um, you talked about how the how fintech hasn't really made that many inroads into wealth management um, has that changed at all in the last what, seven and a bit months or is it still the same story that it's not really taking off well I think there's a, a big difference here between the US and the UK in the, in the US these so-called robo advisors 
um, have taken off. Uh, it's really a, a massively hyped up name, no surprises there, for a process whereby your portfolio just gets rebalanced. So for example, you say, oh, I want 30% in US equities, 20% in bonds, and 25% in the UK. Um, and then the computer, when your portfolio goes to, I don't know, 25.5%, sells half percent and, and moves it around. Uh, a rather strange process, uh, if you ask me. Um, What's the difference, the U- just very quickly, what do you get from doing that rather than using a spreadsheet? Well, what you get from that is that the, the, um, the where you've put your money automatically does that. So oh, if you decided your asset allocation, you want just 30% in US shares for the sake of argument. I mean, I haven't done it, but for the sake of argument, plus or minus one share, it'll, plus or minus 1%, it'll make sure it stays in that. You'd, whereas as, as a part, private individual, let's say you've just bung it in three stocks and then before you know it, one stock's gone through the roof and then 75% of your money is in one stock. You think, oh, that's a bit unbalanced. I, would, I want to rebalance it. So you call a dealer and you deal or you do it online, all that kind of stuff. So it's just automating that kind of process. Um, in the UK, um, there hasn't been many um, inroads. Uh, Nutmeg is the main name that's known. They've changed the chief executive last year. There was a conference uh, run by the Financial News in the autumn, which is an invitation only, which I went along to, on disruption and investment management. Uh, And there was lots of talks, but basically there was only Nutmeg and not really anybody else. And I think one of the reasons for this is that um, index tracker funds have been around for a a long time. Exchange-traded funds, a cheaper version of that, uh, have been around for quite a long time and you know got minimal uh, fees hidden away. And there are discount brokerages like Charles Schwab um, who will sort of sell some of these things for almost nothing. So actually, if you want to be an active investor, if you want to be savvy, if you want to minimize costs, that can kind of be done already. So then, in a sense, what is there to disrupt? And I think the, the big gap on this is the, um, is the whole advisory sector, which is that you know, me with my background of 30 years, I find it confusing. I have to look at what the ISA index allowances this year or whether you can include equity crowdfunding shares or bond debts or, you know, you name it. It just gets more and more complicated. So there's a huge gap um, for advice. And does this lend itself to a tech solution, do you think? I think in principle it does. But in practice, the fact that there's, as I just mentioned with the pensions, 80,000 pages of legislation means that so far nobody, whether they're a teenager or a 35-year-old with 10 million of VC funding, have actually sort of sat in their bedroom or their uh, loft in Shoreditch and actually written an app which assimilates 80,000 pages of information, takes your relevant one and gives you the right answer. So, I mean, the, the current model, is, as, as I often come across it, is you have a human doing that role, and it's a human who's been doing that role for long enough that they're comfortable enough and just sort of going, ah, forget about it at some point. Because it's not like... Any real person carries 80,000 pages around in their head all the time. Um, but they've just seen, you know, th- th- there are enough kind of shortcuts and rules of thumbs um, and judgment calls that they can make to go, do you know what, this isn't, you know, we can do this, this, this should be okay, this won't break anyone. I think that's the world as it was. I mean, I went to, a, I was speaking at a conference last year um, of uh, IFAs, Independent Financial Advisors, who do just the role, you know, you're living in Tunbridge, for example, uh, and you're retiring, you've got a little bit of money, and you, you get some nice man to come along, and he drinks your tea and eats your biscuits and what, all that kind of stuff, and advises you what, what, how, to, how to invest your money. Um, but the problem that the uh, independent uh, advisors face these days is there's a massive regulatory burden being placed upon them, um, and all this stuff around um, mis-selling, um, which to me has got out of all bounds of the original harm, you know, mis-selling sort of um, mortgage insurances and all these kind of things. Now, whether it is or didn't is, 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 is arguable, but what this has done is produce absolute paranoia. So to give you an example, all the um, uh, advisors that I spoke to over coffee and, and that kind of thing, 
they weren't advising any of their clients to invest in peer-to-peer -peer lending because they said it's just not worth it. You know, they said if in five years' time someone decides we were mis-selling by telling people to put to P2P, we'll get thrashed, we'll get ruined, we'll, we'll, lose, our, we'll lose our whole sort of business for life. So um, the regulatory burden on advisors is massive, so they're defaulting to giving the minimum possible advice. A lot of regulation is principles-based as well, which I imagine would be quite hard to program into an algorithm. It started as principles-based, I mean, early in the 90s, but it's certainly not now. It's a million boxes, and I think the problem around this mis-selling is that, of course, some of it's absolutely legitimate and some of the mis-selling was outrageous. But what actually happens is you get a bunch of consultants in 10 years later or five years later, and these consultants and you know, lawyers define mis-selling five years on. You know? yes. <laughs> so this might be mispodcasting for the sake of argument, and their podcasting isn't at the moment regulated, thank the Lord. I'm sure it will be at some point in time. But imagine if in five years' time someone could come back and say, well, actually, you did the wrong thing. You asked the right, wrong question. That, that, that thing you said was, was wrong. You, know, you would be much more fearful about how you're conducting yourself. So that was actually, you know, this is the real politic from the coalface. That is actually the problem that advisors are facing in terms of giving advice. They can't kind of give common sense advice. So I've done a lot of... Um, writing for various people um, on this area and depending on who you're writing for they're more or less paranoid about whether I'm writing and expressing an opinion and that might be take construed as advice you know <laughs> even if I say look this isn't advice but this is what I think and I've got a bit of a background and I may know a little and I don't know everything so make your own mind up you can do as many caveats as you like but some people are pretty paranoid about saying anything which is it's, a, it's a phenomenon I'm familiar with uh, which is which is part of the reason I'm not saying very much in this conversation <laughs> like you speak you're giving no advice on the advice <laughs> oh absolutely not. Not, not none of this should be construed as as any kind of advice to do anything ever um Exactly, but in you know, real, real human beings in the real world need to listen to sources of information. Let's say out the garages, like I've got a problem with car cars, and I don't know which garage to pick. You know, and I think this is where social proof comes in. You know, in this over-regulated world, as I feel it is, or misregulated world, where the professionals are allowed to give less and less and less. You know, you're a professional journalist. I know from having met you and seen you on the scene, Ben. You spend a lot of time speaking to a lot of people to perform your, your views. You do the best you can. I do the best we can. None of us is 100% right. But in this world where, you know, one has to sort of row back a bit from actually sort of saying what you think or even what you do yourself, then the gap arises and actually everyone just starts copying their mates. Or, or you know, on somebody on Facebook says, oh, I put some money into Zopa. Oh, yeah, well, I'll do that then, you know. It's perverse. Yeah. It's perverse. Yeah. It's, oh, there's, it's there's the certainly a gap there. I mean, it's actually been identified by by, by the regulators as the advice gap, um, and it's definitely there. Um, so potentially over time there might be a tech solution to that, but it's going to take a lot of very clever thinking to provide it. Well, I think it's going to require some interaction um, between the people who are suffering from the advice gap, the people who are trying to fill it, and the regulators. So let's say you've got some super tech and he did a reasonable job and said, well, actually, do you know what, for the sake of argument, your 80,000 pages of legislation and regulation are inconsistent, which of course they will be. Imagine a computer program with 80,000 lines and it's going to have bugs. It's going to have bugs, yeah? Um, and then there's going to have to be some slimming down of regulation. Putting this into context, going back to, as I said, when I started as head of risk, when, you, when I was head of risk, the, bank, the governor of the Bank of England, his eyebrows held an enormous amount of power. You know, the, when it was not codified. You go along there and you say, well, we're thinking of doing this. You say, really? Hmm. 
Instead, if I were you, I'd think about that again. So you go away, you go, you would literally go away. This is a different world. You know, I, f I feel like sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Star Wars talking <laughs> about the, the reign of the Jedi Knights and how it was different in those days. Um, but you go back and think it again. So there would be a human being who made the judgment in every circumstance. It comes very much to what I'm saying about too many cooks spoil the broth, many hands make light work. There isn't a right answer. It depends on the circumstances. Now, we've gone from that kind of world, which many people can see as extreme, although actually it tended to work better in terms of less financial crisis than at the moment, to a world which is a very American world or very European world, as it were, which is ruled by lawyers. You've got, you know, the, the, the Napoleon's Revenge, as it was, as it being called. Everything has to be prescribed. Everything has to be written down. But the trouble is, when you do that, you're left with this massive complexity, which nobody can cope with. Nobody knows 80,000 pages of regulation on pensions. Nobody, not even the best lawyer on pensions. So it's this perversity. So the, the other point I'd like to make about fintech, as we're getting near sort of wrapping up here, which is that... Fintech exists for a reason. So one reason is it's just the, it's quotes, just unquotes, the impact of digital upon financial services. So the media has been heavily hit by digital for the last five or 10 years and newspapers are, are, you know, are having all sorts of problems coping with the digital world. So that's the first thing about financial services is that digital is starting to catch up with it. Um, the second point is it, in many ways, fintech wouldn't exist were it not for the 2008 crisis. People are so unhappy, so fed up with banks and bailing them all out and banks paying themselves massive inflated bonuses afterwards and all that kind of thing, that in a way people are saying, look, is there any other way we can do this? And this is where the motivation is coming from. So the fact that the overall context is that FS has gone a bit astray, the way of restraining FS, they've tried to do like the Gulliver's Travels. You know, Gulliver, this, the FS is this huge giant, but it gets tied down by these thousand, thousand tiny regulations. Now, that kind of helps in the short term, but I think that the most troubling thing, as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned about FS as a whole, is that the ex-governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, and the ex-head of the FSA, uh, Adair Turner, when there was a crash, they've both written books saying that, in their opinion, what's been done isn't going to prevent the next crash. We will have another financial services crash. That's where they're coming from. So FS as a whole is much more of a mess than when I started my career 30 years ago. When I started 30 years ago, we got this pre-Big Bang world, which had actually existed relatively stably for a couple of centuries. We're still going for this transformation of people trying to work out how on earth you manage FS, and fintech exists in that context. So I think it's the kind of thing, actually, Ben, where you've, you've probably got a good career because uh, it's going to keep you going for a few years to disentangle all this kind of mess. I don't think it's going to get boring soon. Um, well, no, it, it, it won't get boring. Uh, it will regularly get annoying. <laughs> but yes. Um, but again, in the, again, going back to your listeners, I think you know, in these circumstances, if you're cautious, then you know, it's a good climate to be cautious in. Equally, if you have a certain percentage of, of your funds, and I'm not giving advice because I'm not allowed to, but if you've got a certain percentage of your funds and you want to go in a bit more Wild West, there's plenty of things you can be doing. And if you've got the time to research it and use good sources such as yourselves, then actually you can get value added upon the man on the street who doesn't have the time to read through these things and may just read through his sort of daily newspaper. So I think there is a chance for outperformance. I think there's a chance for doing much better with your money. Uh, but equally, of course, there's a chance that it's much riskier. And I think, you know, as an in investor, whether you're large or small, um, you're really trying to trade off the same factors, risk and return. I think the Wild West is probably a good a good analogy for it because people people did make fortunes in frontier times, but uh, you know they had to have their wits about them. No, exactly. So you know you could bung all, you can walk into a casino, bung all your money on forty two, and it comes up. You'll be fantastic. And the same thing on crowdfunding. You can take all your money and stick it on one of them, uh, and you've got a chance of being a gazillionaire. Um, but equally, uh, as we all know, that's not the most risk free solution. Well, Mike, that, this has been really interesting. We've barely scratched the surface um, of, of fintech, um, and 
what I would urge people to do if you're interested in this space, and it is a fascinating space, is sign up to London FinTech Podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and then is it, it tends to be about once a fortnight, do you say, Mike? Yes, every, every other that? Thursday. Yeah. Every other Thursday. And also there's a back catalogue now, which I've painstakingly yeah, I mean, indexed on all the various it's topics over 50 of the last episodes shows. as well, yes. yes. Um, so the, the, it's a very, very good archive and library. And Mike's sp- spoken to some... Um, some very interesting people who have who are running some very interesting companies. Um, as you said earlier, there are people at the coalface. Um, you know, so I mean, this is why I wanted to have you on because uh, basically you've done a lot of work, and I can sort of skim off the top of it because uh, which is which is quite handy. But there was an awful lot more to explore, and an awful lot more to learn about. Um, and there's there's some really good stuff. There's some not so good stuff, and there's some you know arguably ugly stuff going on. Um, and we could talk about this all day, but uh, you know we've both got things we need to crack on with. But Mike, this has been really good, and I thank you very much for your time.